0: So, Richard here has worked with um, Ardman Animations for quite some time, and he's been involved in the Shaun the Sheep and Creature Comforts TV series, as well as Creature Comforts in America. Um, Mark has written for an incredibly wide range of TV, from Spitting Image through to Nevermind the Buzzcocks. And for film, he's written Madagascar, Curse of a Were Rabbit, at- uh, Aliens in the Attic, and Nomeo and Juliet. Uh, my far end, Pete Doctor, um, is one of the key individuals at Pixar. And as a writer, he helped develop the stories of Toy Story 1, 2, and the forthcoming Toy Story 4 and Wally. And he's also a director responsible for Monsters Inc. and Up as well as Inside Out. Um, Richard and Mark, I thought I'd start with you. And just so you know, we, the, the structure of this event, um, normally we wait till the end with uh, any questions from, or comments from the audience. But about halfway through, I'll stop and, and take any questions or comments that you may have, as well as at the end. And um, let's, let's talk about beginnings, first of all. Um, Shulman's Sheep is an incredibly popular tv series hugely successful around the world um how early did you have the idea that this could potentially be a film in its own right
1: um i i think from right for, right from the first series right from the start when we started to we found a format we found a way of telling stories with sean um where he uh was had, was slightly oppressed, you know, he was a sheep on a farm, and the, he, was, he was a sheepdog looking after him. And there's a farmer, so he couldn't do what he wanted. So he, he had something to push against. And um, even it, we did an episode in the first series called Save the Tree, which was uh, actually made people cry. And I thought, this is good. Who can make people <laughs> people cry as well as laugh? This is good. Uh, so it felt almost straight away that that you could tell longer form stories with Sean because there was already a there's a kind of family relationship already there. Um, you know, like the farmers, the father and the, and Bitzer is the oldest sibling, and Sean is the son, and the, lots of other siblings and cousins, which are the flock. Uh, and you know, a fam in terms of TV, I think a family is a really good way to go. You know, all the best animated series seem to be based on uh, family units. So, um, so yeah.
0: But I guess the challenge you have here is is moving from a shorter TV format in which there's absolutely no dialogue whatsoever, to moving to a feature film, which has absolutely no dialogue whatsoever, which seems to me a, a, an even greater challenge.
1: Well, it did scare us, didn't it? Yeah, uh,
2: yeah we were pretty scared. <laughs> um, I mean, there was, you know, 40 years of silent comedy um, or silent film up to that point that we could look back on, and we did. We watched a lot of those old movies, and we were inspired by them. Um, I think, I think the, the two things that quickly became apparent when you go from... What was effectively a seven-minute episode story to a feature is you need to give your characters an emotional life, and you need to take them out of their comfort zone. And so we, we knew immediately that some of the story would be away from the farm. It would sort of start off in the world that people knew, um, but that uh, we wanted the characters would you know would have to change in some small way, um, and we wanted to dig into the character. The characters that were there were great. We wanted to dig into that world, and I think. Um, you know, in the series, it had very much been um, a workplace comedy where you've got a kind of, um, you know, a boss and a foreman, which is bits of the foreman character. And Sean is kind of, you know, um, the worker with the workers around him. And we kind of reimagined it as a family, really, um, with, the father as, with the farmer as a father figure. And bits was a kind of elder sibling. Um, and Sean is more of a Malcolm in the middle. And I think that gave us a way into an emotional story. And then it becomes about, you know, trying to hold a family together. I think that was what helped us a lot. And Peter, I guess the inspiration
0: for you, first of all, came from your daughter.
3: Yeah, my daughter was about 11. If you saw Up, which a lot of people did, she did the voice of young Ellie at the beginning of that movie, the kid who's like, it's like America, but south, that kid. Um, And she was kind of like that character until she turned 11. (laughs) And then she became more quiet and reclusive. And uh, that process of growing up was kind of what inspired the film what's going on in her head when that happens you know what all of us went through it yeah. so we tried to explain that and just in relation to the other films to
0: you've done, I I read that you'd gone to people like uh, the psychologist Paul Ekman or had been had sort of researched his work. How much research actually went into this in
3: comparison with previous films? Quite a lot, actually. Um, We at the beginning, I thought, okay, emotions as characters, this could be great. If we do this, right, it would be I was thinking kind of like our version of the seven dwarfs where you have Sneezy and Grumpy and all these guys who are very clearly defined, you know, it's what I feel like animation can can do so well is these caricatured larger than life personalities. But I wasn't even sure how many emotions there were and what do they, what's their function and all this. And so talking to psychologists was a great help. Of course there was no, not, consensus <laughs> so one guy said well basically there are three emotions and then another guy said 16 and another guy said 27 another guy said zero so you know we just had to in the end we kind of had to make it up ourselves as opposed to the 10 commandments of animated films a cast of thousands no yeah it was it got too many if you get 27 in there you're like wait who's that what do they do again so uh,
2: that was, i was wondering to ask a question about that because i guess one of the sort of uh issues that comes immediately with that is that your characters sort of trapped within that emotion and I mean, obviously, brilliantly, you turn it around in the film. But, I mean, was that something that was a big problem for you? You know, you, you're always going to have to be a sad – you're a main character. You can't have any kind of color. You have to be this one note. Yeah, that was our initial thought was that
3: everybody would be angry all the time or fear, fear-based, fear whatever. In the end, we said, all right, well, it's more their job. So that's their tendency. In the same way, some people we know might be uh, – trigger angry. You know, they, that doesn't take very much, whereas other folks, you have to really push them. Um, we figured that joy will have to be more emotive than just joyful, and you know that 's the way it worked out, like I say, we looked at them as almost like that 's their job is to make protect Riley of fear or uh, and this was cool and doing and has nothing really to do with animation so much but um, if you look at each emotion has a very specific function and reason why it exists for us, and it 's basically to protect us in various ways, so fear keeps you safe so un- Uh, Uncertainty is what triggers fear. Um, Anger is make sure that you make that you don't get ripped off. So uh, injustice is what any time you or someone else is taken advantage of, that's what brings anger out. So everybody in there is trying to make sure that Riley is safe and well taken care of, and ultimately happy. Even though they're they have all these other jobs. Just dealing with uh, staying with um, Inside
0: Out, moving from the idea to a story or rough outline to a treatment to the actual writing of a script. How long as a rule do you spend on sort of developing the story before you actually get down to a nuts
3: and bolts of screenwriting? Well, let's see. Um, we come up with an idea and usually within – Nine months or so. We're well, even before then, I'd say within like four or five months, we're writing. But you, you know, you start with small little treatments, and then it grows. And we do a full script, and then that usually is lousy, so we throw it out and do it again uh, one or two, three more times before we move into story reels, which is what we call animatics. You guys are probably familiar with that. It's, you know, basically a comic book version of the movie. These drawings, one every second or half second, and then we put our own dialogue, which we usually do ourselves, and music from ri- ripped off other movies and sound effects. And that way we can sit in the screening room like we are here and hit play and have a pretty good idea of what the movie's going to feel like before we make it. And usually it sucks. And so we <laughs> cut it all up and we change it and we get a bunch of notes and we do it again and again. So by the time you see it, we've made the movie, I'd say, eight times roughly uh, before we start actually making it. If that makes sense. So you guys must have a similar process, huh? Yeah,
4: yes.
1: Yes, yeah, so very, very much so. We always feel like the, once the, the reel is finished, that's the, that's the kind of hard work done. But um, in, short, in the case of Sean, we were still working on the reel and start making the movie, which is always a yeah. scary thing to do. Yeah, that's true. Uh, we,
2: we have this other uh, strange thing because it's stop frame animation. So everything physically exists. You know, it's kind of a, uh, making a film in miniature. Uh, And so uh, I don't know how it works with you guys, but you have an animatic and that is your guide and all the things you talked about. And then it's like you basically go downstairs and shoot it. And sometimes that process, which can be magical because you're you're dealing with animators who kind of are like our actors in a way. But there's a gap there. There's a huge gap. And sometimes what you see on the reel and what comes out. Is not always better. Sometimes it's worse. Um, and we don't have a huge margin of error. You know, we, we can't afford to reshoot and reshoot. So there's always that kind of um, uh, sense of jeopardy when you actually go to shoot it. But it's quite a nice feeling as well because, you know, you, you get into a room and, you know, the crew are there. Um, and there's a set and it's, it kind of feels, you know, analogue and real. And it's quite a nice experience. It's kind of spooky hearing you. I could have said the exact same thing for <laughs> for us, right. uh,
3: although it's not physical. It's all in this mysterious gray box that you can't touch. <laughs> yeah. But otherwise, exactly the same. Oh, can, sure. can you talk about the process of writing in teams?
0: Because this is something, again, that you share yeah, yeah. Th- of bouncing ideas off each other, both things that work and don't work.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, we had um, – I think we kind of tended to follow uh, Pixar's model, really, and uh, and – we include all the senior members of Ardman in the process at some stages, um, which are Peter Lord, Dave Sproxton, uh, Nick Park, and uh, his co-director Steve Box. They're all they're all kind of um, very experienced, and we need that experience. We couldn't really you need to work it as a group. I mean, writing a screenplay, as I'm sure everyone will agree, is uh, is incredibly difficult, very difficult to do for one person. Um, you know, me and Mark worked very hard on it, but we needed other people to slap us around the head occasionally and go, no, okay. no that way, or no, that yeah. way. You
3: know? Yeah, because you get so close to things. You're like, this is hilarious. And then you show someone else, and there's nothing. and you
2: like, okay. It's a bit like your parents, because right. you sort of say, I hate you. But actually, you know they're right. You know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But uh, I mean, it's interesting. I don't know how it works at Pixar. One of the big debates we have is when you go from script to storyboarding, because there's and we're always there's always everyone's trying to find a shortcut, and we haven't found one yet. There probably isn't one, but it's like what we ask ourselves: this process can take, you know, and ours was quite quick. It was two or three years, but um, we're going right. Well, we've done a script and we worked on that, and then should we spend longer on that? Because when as soon as you put it up on a reel. It doesn't work anyway. So should we just go straight to the real, like Disney did? I just don't know. What's the answer? Tell us the
3: answer for you. The same thing with us. You look at the script and you're like, well, it's not quite working. But, you know, if you get it working, like you say, it doesn't matter. Because every time you go to a new form, you have to reinterpret. It's not just as simple as taking those words and making the characters say them. Because usually they're way blabby. You know, you cut out half yeah. the dialogue because uh, you're visually showing things instead of instead of talking about them, and and then you go to animation and you have reinterpret it again. So,
1: yeah, and, and in, with us, uh, the because there's no dialogue <clears> that we rely a lot on physical comedy, uh, you get bored with it. You, you you watch you know you do it. Ah, oh, that's brilliant! Everyone loves it. You watch it again and again and again. You re-edit it, and you, and you're in danger of changing things just because you get bored with them yourself. And you forget it was funny once, you know, and it's um, that's a very difficult process because then you don't know whether it's funny or not. You just lose sight of it. That's why it's important to work as a team. I
3: think. How do you how do you write physical comedy? With because I've I've read that like Buster Keaton and uh specifically would never have a script. He would just workshop things physically because that's the way the audience is gonna see it. But you have to write it down at some point just to plan for it, right? Do one of you play the sheep by any chance? Yeah.
0: Well actually I was gonna I'm I mean, not we, falling
2: over again. <laughs> well we do we do have this process and I, and I guess again, I don't know if you have a similar one, we call it live action video, which is where we kind of you know, me and Richard would sort of go behind a curtain in this little room which had a camera in it. And we would oh, be that's sheep. Of that.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I can't tell you what happened. All I can say was magic. <laughs>
2: um,
3: I was going to say that sounds like a good idea, but maybe but it not. was.
2: Uh, <coughs> probably, Children it's probably, in the audience. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's probably illegal in America. But, um, but um, no, but it was. Uh, uh, so, some yes, yeah, so the answer is that uh, we would need to get physical ourselves with it. But I think we talked about it a lot. And I guess what, what me and Richard learned from doing a silent movie, which we knew already but we learned all over again, was the importance of timing. It really was split second that you would look at something and, why isn't that funny? Why isn't that funny? And you would shift something around and you would just do something. little, And it seemed very obsessive and pedantic, but if you just got it you know, in the pocket, suddenly it was funny.
1: I agree. Yeah. That, that, um, I just think that's a magical process where you can have a sequence and it's not quite working. You can literally take out a 25th of a second... And suddenly it clicks. You know, it's, it's, it's astonishing.
3: Which is mysterious. The closest I've come to hearing it explained in any logical way is surprise. Uh, and you'll notice this even in writing a line of dialogue. If you put the surprise comedy word in the middle, it doesn't get a laugh. But if you shift that to the end, so you're setting up the audience to think this is all about baloney. And then the baloney is the switch. I can't think of a good example of that. But hopefully you know what I mean. You, you want to wait until the very last minute to, to, to do that.
2: We actually have a, a there's a, a slang word because I, I, my background is a British gag writer. We call it a Langdon. The reason we call it a Langdon was there was a British gag writer called John Langdon who wrote loads of jokes for that kind of sending you the wrong way thing. And so, so it became a kind of shortcut. So we'd say, I've got an idea for a Langdon. Oh, and then wow. you'd sort of do it, you know. And you're absolutely right. The, the structure of the joke was, was paramount. And um, in verbal jokes and, in, and I think in visual comedy, you know, as much, if not more so. I love those kind of
3: Ward Langdon. I mean, I think somebody could put together a glossary and understand filmmaking just by understanding those little <laughs> phrases.
0: You know,
3: it's interesting. One of the
0: things that you seem to be talking about um, is this, the jeopardy involved. It comes at an earlier stage for you guys of having to get things right because I've spoken to directors who shoot live action films and there's so much they can actually change later on, not so much in the editing, but during a shoot, that they go, OK, that didn't work, let's do it again. But with you, by that point, the cost is quite huge. And so it strikes me that you just have to get everything right that much sooner.
1: Oh, that's, that's right. It takes a lot to uh, um, to leave the reel alone. You want it to be as good as possible before you start shooting. And uh, we, we, we do have some leeway. I'm, I'm, I'm interested to know how much leeway Peter has once you finish the reel. But we do... Have give ourselves some leeway to improve things or, or change things, um, but it's very difficult because uh, you're working with 150 people, and it's like trying to steer a big ship. You know, you change one thing, and you have to wait ages for, it, for everything to move. You know, it's. Uh, um, but you know, we, we 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 were working on the script right up to the end. We put in a in a completely new scene uh, two months before the end of the shoot that we weren't going, going to have The happen. whole sequence which, yeah. which one? Oh yeah, sequence um, The quarry sequence Yeah well, the, the previous one just wasn't big enough The film f- felt it went like that then like that and we wanted it to go We, okay. right
3: yeah. <clears throat> we, we were able to because of uh, the dialogue and, and we really had a, an amazing cast of comedians that uh, we got to work with on on Inside Out so we would write and rewrite and scrap it and rewrite it again. So by the time we come to the to the recording room, we we had worked quite a bit to know what we wanted. But knowing that we had Amy Poehler and Bill Hader and all these amazing comedians, I often would just say, "Play around with this a little bit. Go go somewhere else. Uh, surprise me, or you know, goof around." And and so a lot of that made itself uh, into. We animate later, of course. We do this all before we animate, so um, we can use. You know, we'll record sometimes 20 takes usually fewer like amy would get it right the first time and sometimes i'd just do one or two more just for fun but if you're playing around then you have all this material you could cut it together in a lot of different ways before you ship it to animation so we we have quite a bit of leeway that way
1: yeah. don't we, don't do that with john cleese by the way no no, no. okay I just uh, why is that you go. Can you play around with it? You know, just sort of. He goes, so you want me to write it for you? Do you? <laughs> well, that's,
2: that's what you'll get. So. What were you doing? Were you in John Cleese's house? Did he ask you there or anything? Just,
0: he has sorry. this black curtain that they have to go behind. <laughs>
3: yeah.
2: and... Get into this later. <laughs> no, I mean we had the same process, but it's a bit bizarre, obviously, because there's no dialogue. But there is there is vocalisation. And so we had it on a kind of miniature level where we, you know, we, we got, a, again, great set of voice artists, got them into the room and we said a, a, a couple of things. First of all, we said for the purposes of the this story session, this is, or this sound session, this is, you're doing Battleship Potemkin, you know, this is real, the emotions are real, yeah. don't, don't ham it up, um, you know, these are real characters with real things. Um, but then we would say, you know, we would, we would let them sort of play around with it a bit and you'd get, it would be bizarre, it would be literally a tiny noise. Uh, maybe a gush a a vocalization or something oh that one there and we would find it and we would put it on and it would apart from the comedy it would sometimes express so much it's amazing how you can express so much with so little
3: would you generally even the vocalizations record those and give those to the animators before they start they have okay so if they wanted to shift timing put another seven frames in here before the uh, that's okay or you you'd talk to them i guess
1: uh, yeah occasionally um, yes most of the time but it yeah, we never always runs smoothly so, yeah. sometimes they change it because they think it's better and uh, yeah end yeah, up in the editing room cutting bits out yeah again, exactly at
3: animation at Pixar anyway all the animators you give them a seven foot scene they want it to be and we measure in feet for I don't know for historic reasons I guess because there's no longer film it's all vis- vis- a video but uh, or uh, digital but they always want to make it longer I guess is my point every animator yeah. wants to make it longer
2: Sure. They want to tell a little film in their own shot, don't they? Yeah, that's exactly. The yeah, that's, that's very, I mean, how much, I mean, did, in terms of like um, performance, I mean, do you completely manage that or do, do you let them have their own freedom with that a bit?
3: Well, the way I, I like to work, if I possibly can, is talk sort of emotionally what I need out of the scene. If there's something specific, like in order for this cut to work, I need the hand on the doorknob six frames before we end. Then we'll talk about that. But most of the time, I'll just say, you know that feeling like, uh, oh, when you get home and you're taking your shoes off and you hear a thump from upstairs and you know, no one is supposed to be home. You know that feeling where your hair stands on end? I want that in the shot. And it's up to the animator as to how they express it, in what way, physically. Um, uh, And then we have this, with animation in the computer, you can block things out pretty well pretty quickly um and we can make a lot of revisions so animators can come in show us the rough blocking and we can make pretty big changes uh without having to invest a lot of time i know for you guys it's made one frame at a time and it's harder to go back and
1: yeah, change. i things. think i think we probably invest a bit more in that process before that's why we uh record uh r- record ourselves on video acting it out because we need to they need to know exactly what we want um we try to give them a bit of leeway. They, they always bring a bit of magic to it. But uh, I think we kind of, uh, yeah, like you say, because it's one frame at a time, if the shot goes wrong, you can't really jump in and alter it. You have to start again.
0: And this is, this is the interesting thing with, with working on animation, that even with your biggest Hollywood productions, that have a huge number of visual effects, with probably the exception of Gravity, which was a very, very long shoot. Most shoots are over in a couple of months Um, And then it goes to post-production and visual effects teams to work on it, and occasionally the actor comes back. But it's a constant for you guys for years on end, and it always amazes me the levels of energy that you must have as filmmakers. And you you were saying about having to do this over and over again on a platform might not seem funny 100 times around, but it is that thing of constantly having to drive yourself
2: forward – yeah, absolutely, yeah. I mean, we describe it as an adrenaline rush in slow motion. <laughs> there's, there's, there's always this kind of, you know, gnawing anxiety uh-huh. the, the pit of your stomach, you know. And, of course, the more you watch the crap version that's on the reel, the, the more that anxiety kind of grows. But, and I think there's a danger, which is um, not to throw the baby out with a bathwater. And I think what Richard's talking about was really important, is that you, you wanted to, to try and see the good in it. Uh, the danger is that you just think it's all bad because you've watched it a hundred times, and you know it's like you get these bands that have a hit song they hate playing, you know, at their gigs and things. You kind of so you have to kind of recognise that, but you also have to be very, very honest with yourself. Uh, and if it's not working, you have to fix it, you know. So it, it, it kind of um, it, it does require a lot of concentration and energy over a long period. Yeah, at some point, it's less
3: about talent and more about tenacity <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to keep going, keep going.
1: I did have these uh, really strange dreams where? Um uh, I'm animating myself. Oh yeah. So uh, I'm I'm asleep or sort of semi asleep, and then I, you know, when you turn over, I'm actually turning over a little bit at a time. Wow. You I have been working in.
2: too hard. There's no question about <laughs> it.
1: Uh, and I wake up and sort of have a little chuckle to myself, and uh, and go back to sleep again.
0: Don't go and watch Anomaly, sir. <laughs> It'll really do your head in. It'll take you two weeks to have one night's sleep, then. It is. That's
1: exactly right. Yeah.
0: I wonder if I feel so tired. Um. Before we move on to talking about character and seeing some more clips, um, you, you've talked about enacting um, certain scenes and in a way it goes all the way back to the beginning of um, mainstream animated uh, features with Snow White, where Walt Disney, I don't know if this is apocryphal, but would literally, apparently acted out the entire um, scenario to his, his crew. Um, pitching. Have you guys actually had, to pitch sort of in the early stages the idea, or was it something that just, both with Inside Out and Shaun the Sheep movie, just something that developed and people sort of
3: greenlit along the way? For Inside Out, um, it's a big company, a lot of uh, collaborators, and so all the way through, from the very beginning throughout, I'm pitching, in some form, the film. At the beginning, it's in just a very quick synopsis, but along the way, sometimes it's 20 minutes, half hour, almost like performance, where I'm standing... Telling the story and trying to act out the characters and make people connect with why this is going to be a good movie to get them invested so that they'll you know be able to bring their own talents to it. So definitely a lot of storytelling um, involved. That's for
2: sure. Do you do you use visual backup for that?
3: Yeah, a lot of times we'll have s- sketches that we'll show as well. Uh huh.
2: Yeah, I mean, same for us. I mean, I think pitching is a hugely important um, part of the process. And we had to sell the movie, you know, to, to our wonderful back of studio canal, just in case they're in here. But, um, <laughs> um, and, um, but also, I think it's a very useful device because it, it's about telling a story. And if there's something wrong with the pitch, there's something wrong with the story often. And so, um, you know, it, it, it was a great way of just sort of just running out the story and seeing if it makes any kind of sense. There
3: are a lot of examples, you mentioned Walt Disney, of I think it was on Pinocchio, I've read stuff where he would tell anybody he could find, the janitor, the doorman, he would want to stop them and tell them the story because every time you tell it, you notice reactions, you improve them, you shorten long parts, you make things clearer. So by the end of telling 50 people, you become very good at telling the story and that's all learning that you can apply to the next step.
0: I love the idea of people leaving work at the end of the day, seeing Walt Disney walking down the corridor and quickly running right with <laughs> the other, end. The other oh way. Oh my God, he's coming! Yeah. Quick oh, run!
2: Well, can I tell you Half a quick, an hour! A quick, a quick story about that. Because um, Aliens in the Attic, which you mentioned, uh, was a film that happened a few years ago, but I brought it out as a pitch. And I kind of arrived in my kind of cardboard suitcase in LA on a Monday, and I was a bit naive, a bit wet behind the ears. And I sort of did my first pitch uh, in the morning, I think on Monday, and it was rubbish, you know, and the guy was like. Oh, and I, and I thought that wasn't very good. So I went back and I kind of started to add to it and everything. And then I did 20 pitches that week. And on Friday afternoon, it was, it was like a polished story. It was fantastic. And um, uh, I still didn't sell it. But I went, I went <laughs> home and wrote it. I went back and wrote it. I'd had free, all It's like speed dating with, with story because I had all this, you know, uh, feedback and this intense feedback, and it really helped. And I think that was a kind of very extreme example of how pitching can help kind of build a story.
3: And that's the exact reason why we do these story reels I was talking about, because you put things up and then you can sit with the audience and feel where they're falling asleep and where they're confused or bored or excited or what have you. <laughs> um, and in a way, you know, I, I remember as a student, I thought, oh, what weaklings would subject their films to the whims of the audience? I, the artists know best, you know, but uh, you go back and even uh, Buster Keaton talks about i think he said something like he's never released one film that after an audience preview they didn't grab a camera and go reshoot stuff so it's gone on forever you just uh, the, the goal is to just make the best film you can that the audience will respond to whatever it takes you want to do it, it watching that,
0: uh, that that clip again from uh, sean the sheep i think it's in city lights Uh, there's a scene with Chaplin in a restaurant trying to behave um, and it is amazing the link between that and silent cinema of how it sort of mainlines all the way back Mm. to that kind of comedy Mm. with the level of sophistication of so many other things going on
2: yeah I mean I think we were um, sort of a bit self-aware of that I mean I think we we uh, we changed the story Uh, there was a turn in the story and we um sort of re-engineered it and we said we need a big set piece at that point and it just felt like we'd watched some of these restaurant scenes and they were so great you know i love that um i suppose we call it comedy of manners you know that tension that you get when you're in a social situation where you're a little bit uptight a bit nervous about doing the wrong thing and you know it's going to kick off at some point i mean charlie chaplin is brilliant at that and um so we, we 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 wanted to do a kind of homage to that
0: Pete, um, you've mentioned before the um, different psychologists said to you how many emotions there, there potentially could be. Um, you end up with joy, anger, sadness, fear, and disgust. Could you talk about your choice of those? And were there any others that got dropped along the way that you had actually created within the narrative?
3: Yeah. Yeah, we um, kind of purposely chose initially what we thought of as negative emotions to, to be – uh, a big weight, a counterweight to joy. Joy is the only sort of positive one. Now, when we mentioned that to the psychologists, they said, no, no, that's not true. All emotions have good and bad, or positive and negative. So, as I mentioned, anger is could get you into trouble, things you might regret saying, but it also is the thing that uh, brings you to do good work for other people. So, uh, like social justice, often you might be angered by, what? Those people are taking advantage of, I'm going to send money in, or do uh, sign up for the Peace Corps, or what have you. So, there are positive and negative sides to everything. Um, in the end, uh, we reduced the number of emotions based on joy again because she has the main character uh, needed to have the through line for the film. As an example, we, we for a while we had Pride, who was this guy who we were, we were sort of ripping off Thurston Howell III from Gilligan's Island, where he would walk around and say, well, clearly Riley is the most intelligent person in this classroom. Why, she, she should be president of the United States. In the, in the end, we wanted Joy to be able to say that kind of thing. Um, and so F- Pride as a character got in the way, so we cut him out. We also had um, Schadenfreude, And uh, ennui, um, which had very small parts, but um, we cut them as well. They have German accents. Yes, of course, Schrodenfreude had a German accent and he wore lederhosen.
0: (laughs) (laughs) How early in the writing process um, do you actually visualize the characters?
3: Well, uh, pretty early for us. I mean, even as we're – before we write scripts, we're drawing little figures. Some of them are completely wrong in the end or different, else to say. Um, but we're starting to visualize. And this whole storyboarding thing is not just a pre-visualization. Like you, you read about it. Alfred Hitchcock would do storyboards, but that was really so he could figure out the camera work. For us, it's an extension of the script process. Uh, so how joy comes off and the character arcs and all this are being worked out in the story reels. And uh, we need to know what the characters at least roughly would look like to be able to draw those up.
0: Obviously, Sean is already created. You've got a farmer, but with other characters, how how early in that process did you decide what they would look like?
1: Um, well, we're constantly doodling. I, I, I constantly doodle. So um, while we're talking about characters, I was uh, I was – doodling away and um you know our, our character de- <laughs> we, time was so tight our character designs would literally be me going like that <laughs> to uh model maker so uh, some of them turned out like that but uh we took a lot of time spent a lot of time on um on slip and uh the the ugly little dog and um the guy we call trumper who is the uh animal warden um, he was kind of loosely, and again, we, I, I, I kind of try to look for characters that um, are not stereotypes, but they're characters that you might recognise from real life, um, which I always feel is a compliment to say, oh, I know somebody that looks like that or acts like that. Um, so, uh, Trump was kind of based on a security guard that worked at Aardman, Um probably dabbled in some right wing politics, uh. had, had ideas above his station. <laughs> Failed to make it to the police force, um, and had this kind of SWAT outfit on. I mean, I'm talking about uh, the security guard now. He used to to have a black baseball cap, microphone, uh, uh, black jacket with hundreds of pockets. You know, he just looked – we always used to have a little snigger behind his back. And um, anyway, he was uh, (laughs) get a bit carried away here. But, yeah, we we took some time developing and designing uh, Trumper, but – the others we just were were kind of keen that they would they they just looked familiar, if you like.
3: I should mention uh, we have an amazing art department uh, at, at Pixar. And on this film, I think we had about six or seven folks that their job was to design this whole world and all the characters. And so they would start by looking at the storyboards, but sometimes go very different. It would end up very different looking, um, and they're amazing artists.
1: Uh, I was just really uh, we went around to me and Mark went around to Pixar and you had all the development drawings for <coughs> the world, if you like, of Inside Out and, yeah. and how how that would function what, what sort of environment it was and what did it refer to and I thought that was, was incredible stuff, you know, just hundreds of amazing pieces of artwork with the the brain or the mind imagined in a hundred different ways. It was just terrific.
2: Right. Well,
3: yeah, sorry, go on. I was going to say, we just, even for, for a film like this, which, which is largely made up, we wanted it to th- be very thought through. So like the console, we actually put together a little user's manual. So if you were a, a new emotion, you could step up and thumb through the manual and figure out what all these different knobs do so that we really had a sense of what this place was and how it worked.
2: Yeah, because I I was going to say there's Often with Pixar, I I guess um, Monsters Inc. is another great example where you've literally built a world from scratch, uh, which is an amazing thing to do because you kind of give those... Not only do you build a world from scratch, but you give it its own values system that we as an audience understand. Uh, I mean, with Sean, it's the other way around. In a way, we, we said, well... It's kind of low concept, and that we want to, just, it's just for the it's a bunch of sheep and it's their local ta- city, you know. Yeah. Um, from their point of view, it's this amazing experience, but it's kind of fairly lo fi. So we, it was kind of, it was more about uh, recreating what was, if you like, what exists. And um, uh, we we, we, got, we got a great art department as well and prop builders. And um, there was one, uh, I thought, was a very flattering statement where a journalist, when we were in Europe, asked if we'd filmed it outside. And uh, well, I think we didn't really know what to say to that. But apart from uh, that's that's how effective it is. But how hard is it to build those worlds? And I mean, it seems such a lot of work to do that.
3: It is, and it takes a lot of iteration. And and it, the art department will design stuff, and will go. Whoa, I've never thought of it like that. The way tubes might you know we might transport these memories by tubes that's interesting and so then then that'll inspire some story work and then story will come up with something that then drives the art department so there's this constant cycle back and forth Um, we try to make sure that those departments are close by in proximity because they really need to see what everybody's doing
0: but also you've got the complexity of the layers within the film you you have the her brain and this world that you create there Then you have Riley's real world and we see the world she's moved from in the snow that she really loved to moving to San Francisco. But at the same time, we've got her memory world, which is the representation through the prism of her own eyes and her own experience of what that world looked like, which isn't necessarily exactly like the real world because it is her memory of that time. And it strikes me that that there's a consistency that's incredibly impressive throughout that these worlds are utterly believable. And I think if you didn't believe in the real world that she actually lived in, it would be very hard to follow on with all those other worlds.
3: Yeah, and I know a lot of times people uh, say our films look so real. And I I'm I, I don't really usually take that as a compliment because I don't feel like that's what we're after. But I think what they mean is they're very believable and that you, you believe in them. Uh, if you – flipped between a picture of, you know, San Francisco in the film and, and a photograph, you'd say, oh, well, of course it's not real. Um, but as you say, you have to believe in it. You have to emotionally connect with it in order to, uh, to feel the film, you know, to have, it, have, it, have, a, have a weight.
0: It's the same with Shaun the Sheep, though. Um, one of the things that really surprised me with it is how sly the satire is. At the expense, first of all, of the media world. Of uh, You saw the guy having his photo in the restaurant. We see him a little later buying into the latest fashion hairstyle, uh, which was a mistake. Um, But there are lots of little pot shots that you have there. But also someone wrote a piece about this film and Paddington. And they said it's going against the grain of what's seen as the archetypal Richard Curtis movie, which is an all-white London or an all-white city. And it is playing the idea that multiculturalism is, is reaching out to all areas of Britain could you talk about the conversations that you had
1: sort of about that yeah uh, well we just I I don't think we went that deeply into it we we just wanted to represent a city by what we understood a city to be Um, and in that case it's obviously a multicultural city so we just said not Norwich
2: not not (laughs) (laughs) it was was funny because uh, it's interesting on that particular point uh, without layering it I mean we, we, we immediately said, well, it's going to be a city. It's, it's, that's what it is. It, it is going to be what it is. And I think we had to just um, maybe work a bit harder to make sure that was done um, uh, and that process was 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 carried through. Uh, and, and actually, again, just in terms of – it's really just about observation, I think. And I think a lot of the things – it's interesting, the social satire. We didn't have an axe to grind. We weren't sort of trying to get, get the fashion industry. But when you – there's something about – almost animating those things that make them comic and make them feel absurd so i think that's part of it, it almost flowed naturally from from the f- process really
1: it's got just just to say we had uh, we had quite a lot of puppets like 150 um kind of background characters extras if you like um but uh, that it was never enough so uh, and we you kind of reuse them all the time, like you do extras. And sometimes we try and swap the heads, but then you get like a, a black head with pink arms; so it wouldn't look right, you know. So uh, it, it was uh, it made life a bit more difficult, actually. Yeah.
3: Yeah, we did the same thing, and you, it's like you say, you never have enough characters because you don't want to see. Hey, wait a minute! That's the yeah, same guy that walked by two two shots it's ago. A nightmare. Yeah. yeah. So it's keeping track of all that. Yeah. Boy.
2: Sometimes when they would lay out the, you know, you get a scene would be laid out, come and have a look at it, and there'd be these lovely sort of um, things where you'd have sort of like a, a Muslim guy and a Jewish guy and um, a Chinese guy all together having a chat, and you'd be saying, it's okay, you don't have to sort of make some um, political point about, <laughs> it's, it's not, a, you know, um, it's not a pop song, you know, it's actually fine, it's just the real world, and it's just... Um, uh, just be truthful to it. And that's Although apparently your
0: it. movie is, of course, cool celebr on the West Bank at the moment. <laughs> that's <laughs> right,
2: yeah. <laughs> um, are there
0: any questions from the audience at this stage? We've got a couple of mics. Someone there?
3: For Inside Out, I think um, well, it's my favorite movie of the year, and it's probably one of my favorite movies of all time. And I just wondered uh, if you could talk to the fact that what in my mind makes it so extraordinary is you've created a language for young people to understand what they're going through, I think, possibly. And I just wondered if you could speak to the idea that maybe after you've made this film, maybe people have talked to you or how your daughters reacted to it. But I just think that's uh, there's like nothing that's ever been made that deals with memory in that way. And I I just think it's really amazing. Well, thank you. That's really cool. We have heard a couple of people, uh, teachers especially, and uh, parents of uh, special needs kids with autism specifically and little boys – they all have very, a, a lot of trouble articulating how they feel. <laughs> and so, by making it physical and visual, I think uh, it's been a, a real uh, help for them, which is, I wish I could claim that was our intention, <laughs> making the movie. It's sort of a happy accident. Um, my daughter is, is 16 now, and so when she saw the film, she said, Yeah, good movie, Dad. Which I <laughs> thought, that's high praise. So.
5: Well first I've got to say that I'm absolutely devastated that these two films have come out in the same year because I think in any other year um, if they hadn't come out together each of them would have been a shoo-in for every award so my heart does bleed as I you know, approach the BAFTAs and the Oscars and I just wish that they could both win both of them Um, But I I think they're both works of genius, I think, and their place in history is assured. But I think every genius always looks back on their work with things that they might have done differently. So now that they've been out for a while and they've come out on DVD and Blu-ray, you've had the benefit of hindsight. If there was one thing that you could or even had to do slightly differently... Is there one thing that you look back on and say, think to yourself, oh, I wish that we'd just done something differently there?
2: Oh, that's a hard one. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, my, it's my dad, by the way. That's <laughs> <what that's called. laughs> um, so our credits suck, don't they? <laughs> I don't know, it's interesting, isn't it? Because what happens is... Um, uh, I don't know how you feel, Pete, but for me, I think there's, there's always a lot of chemistry around making a movie. And you never never really know how it's going to go. And so there's always different elements... And when they kind of come together and and something happens and you think that kind of worked okay, you sort of go, whoa, you just kind of back away from it, going, all right, let's just walk away from here. Pretend we knew what we were doing. Uh, (laughs) Maybe we'll get asked to do another one. So I think it's not like I mean, there are things that that I think are imperfect. Some of there's a few shots here and there. There's a couple of gags in it, which for me um, didn't work as well as I'd hoped. And you kind of go, oh, I wish we'd thought that again. And there's maybe, you know, the odd sequence where you would like to have had another look at it. But there's this great phrase, um, I think it might be Spielberg, which is, you know, um, uh, films are never finished, only released. Um, And I think you would carry on playing around with it and playing and playing with it. And so you've got to kind of walk away from it and let go. So I don't really feel a strong, anything strong, I have to say. I don't know about you, Richard. No, no,
1: nothing strong. I mean, like Mark said, um, certain gags, certain uh, shots or certain even – Sequences, but uh, probably not the same ones as Mark. So that's the thing; it's, it's a collaborative process, and uh, you know, you do have to leave it alone. It's it's actually very painful when you stop. I mean, we, you know, we're doing the sound mix, and uh, it's getting to sort of mid-evening, and you tinker a little bit here, and then it just stops. And you go, "Well, that's it; we're done." It's really weird. It's uh, working on it for three years, and it's just sort of peters out. It's no sort of big fanfare; it just goes.
3: You know, by that time, the rest of the crew is on to something else. Yeah. There's only like four yeah. people left.
1: That's you know, right. are like, hey, we're yeah. done. Yeah. 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 yeah,
2: I think often I do, I do wonder whether uh, with, with films, um, sometimes there's a, big, there's a big, often the thing that you uh, want to change about something is a big thing, a big thing where you go, um, you know, there's a movie you make and you go, oh, I wish actually that character was too scary or that was a wrong. It's almost like a, a sort of meta problem. Um, I was just having a chat with the producer the other day and we were just uh, talking about some of the films that she'd done and we'd done and you, those are the kind of conversations you were having where you maybe felt you'd made a mistake but I think um, it's better generally just to walk away and let it let it alone
3: yeah I, kinda, I feel the same way there were, there were uh, some things that I go, well, I wonder if we'd change this, and um, but usually what happens is you go through so many versions that just don't work at all. <laughs> that finally, when you settle on something that does work, you're like, okay, don't touch it, just just move forward. Um, I have the same thing. I have a couple shots I can I could mention that where I felt like the acting could be stronger, or the timing could be sharper. But you know, after five years, I better have gotten most of the stuff that I wanted into there. <laughs> Do you have a sense inside of you – you were saying
0: about the Spielberg quote that, that once it's out there, you can sort of psychologically let go and say, OK, it's no longer my film. It's, it's the film of the person who's now watching it and what they take away from it.
3: It is for me a strange process. As, as it finishes, I feel very protective and it's mine and I've made all the decisions. And then when we start to talk about even something as simple as marketing – I have to let go because I'm not in control of that. I have a little say. I can, if I feel strongly about something, I'll scream. But, uh, but most of the time, it's a whole different group. And then any sort of product or the the life that it has outside, it slowly just goes away. And then now, you know, people sometimes other filmmakers I've talked to feel very protective of their films that have come out, you know, years back. And I've I've found that for me. I slowly let go of them to the point where now I, I go, oh, yeah, I rem- – I, it does – it's not a personal, strong – I've kind of let it go, I guess, you know. I don't know how you guys feel.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I'm I'm just so pleased with, uh, with the Sean movie that there's nothing in it that makes me wince because uh, <laughs> having done lots of TV in the past, you know, occasionally see something and I go, oh, I wish I hadn't done it like that. You know, yeah, I wish, wish that would have been better. Yeah. But there's nothing in the film that makes me wince. And I think that's a sort of it's a measure of... The, yeah, I'm, I'm happy with Put it. Put that, that on the poster. Yeah. Nothing made me wince.
5: <laughs>
1: <laughs> I make like a great critic.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Um,
0: any other questions? Yes, we've got a hand up there.
5: Hi. Um, First, I wanted to say I really do applaud. Uh, my uh, little boy turned around four uh, last year. And he was struggling with emotions and things like that. And by taking him to Inside Out, for example, it really helped especially that age, um, for him to express himself. So I just want to say thank you and applaud that. Um, it's about your voices, really, and how you like to pick your voice over artists, um, how you find them, and do you find that using a celebrity voice can affect the viewer's perspective? Um, and whether or not, you know, for example, using Patrick Stewart, you know, can, you, you just, when you watch something, you see... You hear Patrick Stewart, so it affects the meaning of it. Does that make sense?
3: Yeah. I think for us, I mean, obviously what you're after is clarity in character so, so that when the guy shows up within seconds, the whole audience goes, oh, I know that guy. I feel like I know who he is or she and how they would act. Um, for us, our process, we usually start just with drawings, designs. We're not thinking about voice casting. Sometimes it's in the back of your head. You know, I, from the beginning, I had – tumbled around with Louis Black as Anger, being familiar with his comedy. But Joy, I had really no idea, specific, concrete idea as to who we would cast until way, way late. Um, and then once we, usually what we do is we grab little snippets of dialogue, either from uh, TV or movie, and just listen. And we have a picture of our character there, and we listen. And some seem to fit exactly, and other ones not so much. So, um, And of course, the type of actor you're looking for, there are some actors who do a lot with their face and their body, and their voice is a little monotonous. And then there are some actors who just paint this world just with their, their vocal performance. Of course, those are the folks we're looking for. I think Lewis Black
0: is the one when I watched the film that I thought, okay, that, that I absolutely completely get yeah. why that person is playing that character. Yeah. Does the, does the physicality of a performance, you were saying some people are more physical, um, does, does that affect sometimes the animation?
3: It can. I mean, what we usually do is we set up a movie camera when the voices when the actors are there in front of a microphone. So picture this: they're they're in a gray room with a microphone, and usually me and nobody else in this room. And so they're having to create this whole world in their head. Um, I'm describing it to them, of course, and saying, "No, no, the chasm is." Like the Grand Canyon, really yell or whatever it is. Um, but they're kind of just creating this all in their head. So sometimes they do just instinctively wave their arms around or do some facial expression that we we refer back to. But I've found more often than not, it's just our amazing animators who, in listening to that, can kind of picture something in their head. Um, Billy Crystal didn't really talk with his – voice or sorry with his mouth kind of sneery on one side but it sort of sounded like he did and so that's what they they started to grab onto uh
1: yes well you know they, we've uh, we, there's not a lot of voices in um in Sean yeah. um but they're, they're still very important you know we've got um uh well
0: Omid Jalili for instance is Trump
1: yeah i mean that that, that was uh, i think it's great using comedians for a start because um the sense of timing is usually really good and I uh, got a nice story about Ahmed. Uh, was that when we were recording him? Um, uh, I, I, it refers back to you getting bored with the reel again. I was, I was kind of saying, well, I'll just uh, show you this sequence, Ahmed," and and uh, just played it through. And I said, "Anyway, I want you to." And I turned around to the booth, and he'd gone. And I thought, "That's that's a bit rude, you know." It's just he's obviously gone to the toilet or something. But then this hand came up and grabbed the table, and he, he got up. He'd, he'd laughed so much he'd fallen off his chair. <laughs> So so I suddenly realized actually that, that is funny. So yeah, you're good.
5: Question there. Hi. Um over the sort of the recent years we've seen an increasing amount of films, shorts, and T V series that try and emulate stop motion. Um what are your opinions on this and why do you think people want to emulate this in CG?
3: First of all, do you call it stop motion or stop action? Because I've heard in Britain it's stop action. Stop
2: action? Yeah. Uh, we call it stop frame or stop motion. Okay. okay. We used
1: to call it 3D, but then you stole that from us.
5: <laughs> We've run out of dimensions.
1: We can't. Yeah. <laughs> answer oh, the well,
2: question. Yeah. Uh, 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 no, I agree. No, I mean, I think we each probably. T- it's a technical question. You answer this one.
1: Um, can you can you give a, give me some suggestions? Sorry, I don't know where that question came from. Oh, there, there. Hello. <laughs> uh, uh, what uh, do you have anything in mind? Well, um,
5: at the moment, Blue Zoo Animation is doing some um, a TV series called Digby, and they're mm-hmm. animating in sort of uh, twos and threes. So it's computer, but it's
2: meant to look like yeah. stop motion. Huh? Um, so it's not like Flashed Away, where it's got a kind of um, you know, it's got a house look, but it's actually. You know, it's CGI. You're saying that it's actually trying to imitate stop frame.
5: Yeah, that's yeah. right. And also, um, a couple of years back, there was a competition um, called BFX, and the winners of that, um, their, their final piece looked at very much like stop motion to the point where they put fingerprints on their 3D models. So that, to me, that's
2: like taking a £20 note and trying to make it into a £5 note. Because, <laughs> I mean, I think the thing about stop frame is, is interesting about it is it's... Um, it's not necessarily as commercial as cgi i mean if that's a i know it's a sort of um, vulgar word to use but um it, it is perceived a little bit i think um i think this is probably true in the states as it is here as a slightly of an art house uh kind of medium um and i guess in a way um i don't really understand i wouldn't personally see why you'd want to try and imitate it you should just do it because you're not saving yourself any time you may be potentially saving yourself a bit of money. It depends what kind of, um, I suppose, what kind of software you're using. Um, but actually, the joy of Stop Frame is that somewhere in your brain, when you watch a Stop Frame um, film, uh, you know it's real. There's something in your brain that just tells you that exists physically. And I think that's the sort of the pleasure of it.
1: I think, sorry, uh, the, um, I think it might have a lot to do with nostalgia as well. I mean, we had a diet... Of, we've had a diet of stop frame films that um, I grew up with, in my youth, and you probably did as well. That Bob the Builder and stuff—that—that that, that it's it's part of our culture. So to to imitate it is kind of flattering, I suppose. But um, I think I kind of agree with Mark. You know, I, I quite like a bit of integrity in things to be what they are. There's no point trying to make things look like something they're not. The
3: other aspect of it might be that uh, when done very cheaply, computer animation can look cold and perfect. And so by reaching for something handmade, it brings a warmth uh, to things Uh, that might be what people are after as well. But I think there's ways to do that that are not Trying to yeah. straight up imitate, yeah. Uh,
2: no disrespect to CGI, which is obviously a uh, fantastic medium. But the actually see Nick parts of the very interesting thing about stop frame, which was um, one of the things about stop frame is that it, it has its limitations in terms of scale. Uh, you know, sometimes when we were doing a shot uh, on the movie, um, the reason why you couldn't do a bigger establishing shot was because you the, the, the camera had hit the ceiling. And so it'd be like, either you build another story on the building or you don't do this shot. So you go, okay, well, we'll think about it another way. And actually, um, Nick would talk a lot about how those limitations would actually are good. They're sometimes good. They kind of, um, they help you to, to think about story in a certain way. Um, and to sort of challenge, if you like, the form. And, um, I guess if you're doing it on a computer, it feels like you, there's no point. He's kind of taking those away a bit.
3: Although we have limitations as well. Do you? Oh, you yeah. always think you can do anything. You know? Oh, I know.
2: Well, and there's certain just things. press a button and it's. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right.
3: Certain things you can do, but certain things are very, very difficult. In fact, characters shifting or changing, like if, if you imagine a blob of clay, uh, you, could, you could animate that into almost anything that you can. That would be really hard on the computer because mm. every shape you'd have to. It just takes a long time. We've, like the Joy, I think, the main character was about 16 weeks to build so they, we gave them plans and then the modelers sit and move and shape and then articulate and then you know figured out how to do all this the sort of sparkly bits and the glow and all that stuff just took a long 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 time
1: if you do any um squash and stretch in CGI do yeah does the mass can you change the mass
3: you can you can either have it grow and that's that would i mean we've never really used that but you could have a character literally just kind of grow in in hmm. in space or you can try to preserve the mass to, mm. to get that sort of squashy and stretchy flesh feel.
2: Do you ever actually sort of physically make them just to have a look at how they are? We do. Almost all of the main characters we use
3: uh, in clay, we we do a clay version first. Uh, and I don't – the reason we do it is because if you draw something, you can cheat a lot of stuff without even really knowing it. From the side, it looks this way. And from the front, it looks a different way. But it looks kind of to your eye the same. great example is like um, – uh, uh, Charlie Brown. If you actually look at him from the side, he's a completely different shape. And so for those guys to do uh, the Peanuts movie, they had to do all this shape deformation as the character changes. Uh, uh, Sorry, just looks from left to right. They had to do all this mushing. Um, So, yeah.
0: It's interesting you say about the idea that um, Stop Frame might be seen as highbrow because obviously you have Duke Johnson and Charlie Kaufman with Anomalies and Wes Anderson is going back to make another Um, film but it strikes me isn't it just ultimately what's most important is and it's one of the reasons why I think the quality of the average animated film is far higher than the quality of a live action film it comes down to the strength of a script
2: and and what the script requires
0: ultimately I mean it's
2: about you're right it's about the stories in the end and I suppose you could I mean it goes back to this question about if you have all this extra time you know we're working on our animatics you know are the stories um, better for that i don't know the answer to that i don't know if you have an opinion about that is there a point at which you should just stop you know and let go of it but it's um i guess there's something about feature animation particularly um where breaking those stories always seems to be very difficult maybe it's the demands of it you're trying to please such a, a big audience in terms of the scale of the audience you know all different quadrants as hollywood likes to say uh but also you know you want you know, adults to enjoy it, you want kids to enjoy it. Is it. There just seems to be a, um, an enormous amount of sort of brain power you have to pack into that space. Um, uh, yeah, I don't know if you have an opinion about
3: that. Well, so, sort of an analogous question, which I'd be curious to get your take on, is are there things within animation that we can do that, an, that live action cannot? I mean, certainly there are physically f- things like that, but uh, now with special effects, boy, you can, you know, you have ant-man you have all these movies where characters can kind of do whatever you can imagine but i i mean more emotionally i think for us like i've questioned the the little sequence at the beginning of up with uh, the characters falling in love and going through their lives and she passes away would that work in live action or would you be like oh, this is so you know schmaltzy would you would you accept it would you be emotionally moved by it or, or even in in your if you'd made Sean the sheep in live action would the f- physical comedy be appealing, or would it be like that's so exaggerated? I don't buy it. I don't find it funny.
1: God, that's a difficult question, isn't it? I am not, not. I'm not sure. Um, uh, well, it's interesting what you're saying earlier. Is that we, you know, when we when we come up with ideas or in our development uh, department. Uh, one of the, one of the first questions is what for what reason is this an animated movie? Yeah, why animation? Uh, why why why? And that, that's always the first thing you ask. And um, but as as uh, literally over the last ten years, that's kind of changed now. Like, um, well, why not? You know, it's there, there's <laughs> most most live action films are animated now, so it, it's the lines are becoming blurred, and it's very hard to decide or, or kind of understand. Um, your reasons for wanting to make an, this an animated film? I think,
2: I suppose, uh, maybe it's a conversation about tone. Because I, I think when, uh, what animation does is it automatically suggests tone. Um, and maybe there's, as you said, there's a kind of, because it's cartoon, it's a kind of light-heartedness that allows you to have those deep emotions and, and protect it in a way which is safe. Um, but if you've got a very stylized movie, I saw Tim Burton movie or something, you can get away with quite broad yeah. things as well. Yeah. Um, so, I, I mean... Uh, Maybe it's as much about that, about, you know, the, the intent of the filmmaker is clear, I suppose.
3: Yeah, that makes sense.
0: Humour and emotion. Um, that, take the bing-bong uh, bing sequence just then. You have this sense of action. You have the pace increasing. So when she says, let's do it again, you don't have to see the whole thing. It's shorter. It's building up this sense of pace. And yet, at the same time, you sort of manage to slap us around the face emotionally. Um, with both these sequences and, and the films in general, how tough is it? while you're working on them to, to sort of work through and say, okay, I think I've got the balance right between the humor and the emotion. Well,
3: those tone shifts are particularly hard because uh, uh, later in the film too, we have jokes and action leading up to a big quiet moment. And uh, those are a little tricky sometimes to pull off and you, you have to fiddle with it in editorial. I haven't come up with any sort of rule or wisdom about what works and what doesn't. We just mess with it until we find it. Uh, but I do feel it's important – To give the audience something, I I got to work with this uh, great old story guy named Joe Grant who was one of the guys who came up with the story on Dumbo and uh, worked with Walt Disney in the development department. And he would say, what are you giving the audience to take home? And I think I I was confused by that for a long time. But really, it's emotion, right? If it's just jokes, 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 and you go home, and then your Brian just kind of dumps that and you're on to the next thing. But it's scientifically proven the things that stick with you are those big emotional things in your own life and that's what we're trying to deliver in the film as well so that you get your money's worth you have something that you carry around with you and think about after the movie's done
2: but i don't think necessarily i mean i totally agree with that but emotion and comedy don't have to be distinct i think um we found that if you were rooting for characters if, you, if they were going for an emotional experience you could be funny with it as well because you felt for them so that it actually made the comedy funnier yeah
1: there's a, a little moment i love in um uh, right at the end of our movie where the farmer's back with his sheep and he's patting them all the head and then he pats Shirley and goes... <laughs> that, it just sort of undercuts the yeah. emotion as well. But I loved um, Toy, Toy Story 3, the, the the final sequence where you think they're all going to their deaths mm. really affected me. And uh, I I got back in the car with my three children and go, are you all right, kids? <laughs> What's wrong with Dad? You know. So. <laughs>
0: yeah it's a similar sequence um except it was towards the end of oh, god knows why i'm saying this in public um but towards the end of toy story three um where it's it's the christopher robin moment of the growing up and having to let go um and that got me and i was with uh, a friend's son and I said, I've just got to go to the toilet. Just, just stand by the wash basin, will you? And just sat in the cubicle and thought, I can't go outside while he sees my eyes like this. Yeah, yeah. And after five minutes, knocking on the door, okay, are you OK in there? Are you OK trying to talk? And like, no, just leave me a moment. But there is something about, I think if it was raw emotion and nothing else, again, it, it, it wouldn't work, the balance mm-hmm. of it. It is bringing the humor in and knowing when to bring the humor in.
3: Absolutely. I I mean, I've I've seen films that are so down and dark that by the end, you're like, that was almost laughable in a weird way because you become numb to it. But uh, it's the balance. And I mean, there's the famous Walt Disney quote. He just said, for every laugh, there should be a tear. And I think he was just trying to find that balance. And one helps the other, you know. You feel the humor more when you have an emotional – I think really the thing you were talking about of investing with the character is ultimately what you're trying to do and that's what – I'm always the most proud of the jokes that are not jokes that just come out of character behavior Uh, because that means I've managed to convince the audience that A, this bunch of pixels is actually a real living being and that they care enough about them to laugh and relate to the same things that this character does that's that's a hard-won battle and when it happens you just feel like oh, i did it
2: <laughs> did it ever happen that um there was a moment in the movie that you didn't realize was funny but everyone oh, yeah. laughed at
3: yeah i know now of course i can't remember exactly what that was but <laughs> i can't remember ours
2: either but yeah. this is gonna be a great conversation but <laughs> <laughs> but i do remember i do remember i can't remember where I forgot it was. what the question was
3: <laughs> <laughs> just wait 10 years and <laughs> yeah. it's gonna be
2: worse but no, the um, and I think uh, I mean it happened a couple of times where you'd show it to a, a preview audience. It's always a terrifying experience. And part of it is to sort of run the comedy out as well as the story. Uh, and there were things that you hoped were funny, and they were, and things that you hoped were funny, and they were not. It was a bigger list, obviously. But then every now and then, something would just, would just catch the audience and make them laugh. And I know what it is. I remembered it. Sorry, it was um totally bizarre. It was um right at the end of our movie. If you've seen it, there's a joke about the pigs. The pigs are like sort of bad teenagers, and they've got in the house um, and they kind of trashed it. And then, like basically, the farmers come back, and it's like when you had a party. Oh my god, Dad's coming back. And Mum and Dad come back, and they clean the place spotlessly, and they come out. And they shut the door of the farm. And then one pig, I think it was just an animator put it in. One pig just wipes the door handle with a cloth. <laughs> as like the last little thing. Just, and it always got a huge laugh. And we were like, "Why?" I never thought that was that funny. And it, but I think people were just so invested in the idea of these pigs having to clean the house out. That's great. So uh, have, you, have you remembered yours? No. Okay.
3: <laughs> but I left
2: it there. Well, so. Leave your email addresses. We'll, we'll tell it to you. Um,
0: Robert McKee, who those you don't know he is, is someone who gives lectures on screenwriting um i don't necessarily subscribe to everything he says but one of the truisms that he's mentioned if the story you're telling is the story you're telling you're in deep shit right. um it strikes me that subtext has been for- i personally feel subtext has been forgotten in so much of mainstream cinema and yet the one area it's stronger than ever is in animated film and i just wanted to get your thoughts on it why If you agree, you may feel it's that way.
3: Yeah, I mean I think what he was talking about largely in regard to dialogue. So if a character is saying, you know, I'm secretly in love with you but you don't know it. Obviously you would never write anything like that. But you can demonstrate that in ways that are completely charming to the audience. And, and uh, maybe that's a bad example. But there are, there are lots of uh, things that we, even e- even in real life, I mean, a lot of times I'll have a conversation with my, my wife and my mom and I'll, I'll step away and go, whoa, there was so much being not said there. You know, uh, that, that these moments, um, it's, it, it's the way real life works and what's what we're trying to replicate in, in our films. Now as to why that would be more prevalent in... Animation. Th- I think it's it's prevalent in good live
2: actions and a- any writing. Yeah, I mean, I suppose one thing with animation because it's kind of uh, it's it's family. Is that maybe there are things that you can't articulate too much, are kind of sitting underneath uh, without getting too dark? I guess about some family things and so on. But I, um, I mean, I think uh, a lot of it's to do with theme for us. I mean, we we say Shaun the Sheep. In the end, you know, you you want it to be a story that you can watch. Uh, if you want to watch it as a bunch of sheep farting around in the city and enjoy it on that level, and that's absolutely fine. Uh, but for us, we discussed it on a level as a family dynamic, as I've mentioned earlier. And so we got we had a lot of, I mean, they're quite dull discussions when you have them, but we had a lot of conversations about family dynamic and about you know this is really a story about a father who's a bit absent and a, you know and about and about a, a kid who doesn't appreciate. Um, you know his parents, and why you have boundaries, and why you need parents. And by the way, I think Pixar are fantastic at sort of dealing with these kind of tropes and and bringing those themes in. When you talk about those themes, and then you sort of load it back in in terms of the story you're telling, and the and the gags and the set pieces. Hopefully that subtext sits underneath and you actually find that towards the end of the process, you sort of take it out. You do, if it sticks out too much, it get, it's showing its knickers too much. You try and you can't kind of take it down. So it's just in there. And I think the audience, if it's working, will react to that on a kind of almost subtextual level themselves.
1: That's true. And I think for, for that to happen, you have to you have to believe it yourself. You, can, you, you can't you can't moralize and say, I think this would be a good thing to tell the audience It's something you you've experienced yourself and both me and Mark talked about our relationship with our fathers. And I don't know if any of the, anything we talked about is actually in the film, but it is in a sense because we we had talked about it and we're directing the film. So it's hidden in there somewhere.
0: And within that, could you both talk about the relationship uh, with the music in your films?
3: yeah I think music is really one of those things that uh, when done well is invisibly sorry, invisible to the audience in the in that they're not thinking of it if it's too showboaty and showcased then you start going well the music is, is either annoying or cool or whatever you think but um, when done well it just is there and it kind of buttresses the whole story and, and buoys it up in a in a subliminal way. In the same way we were talking about, I think, subtext, you know, um, that it's you're I learned this uh, at least. Uh, this is my interpretation of the way uh, the brain experts talked about. There's there's multiple processes going on in your head. There's the stuff that you think of as you saying, "I'm going to choose this colored pencil" or "or uh, um, I'm you know read this book" or what have you. But then there's the sort of subconscious part, which is based on all the years of programming from when you were born until now, and that drives you in ways that are completely invisible to you, um, and it causes you to make decisions and do things that uh, I think, like I say, even some of these conversations that you'll have that have multiple meanings, invisible to you. That's why we have therapists, right, Uh, to kind of decode all this stuff and figure it out. And music is kind of like that, where it's down below the surface. It's not ideally not on the surface. It's down below, and it helps just bring that emotion forward. I know Michael Giacchino, who I get to work with on Up and on Inside Out, he always talks about it just as this is – his process, he watches the film. It's mostly 90% done by the time he sees it and started to be involved. And he just says, I try to write music the way I felt when I saw this film in hopes that then that will transfer onto the audience as well.
1: Um, well, we worked with Ilan Eskri, uh, a composer who was uh, – who I think the most brilliant thing he did in the film was to write a song because it's intrinsic – to the story there's a the song every day feels like summer it had to it had to, it had several jobs it had to be um it had to feel like you'd already heard it it had to feel like it was part of the brit pop scene of the 90s or something like that and it had to um you had to remember it because it features twice more in the film and for important story points uh which, so that that was uh that was pretty amazing i agree with what you say about um it, it's strange how you can watch a film. I watched Hateful Eight, and uh, then I watched the credits, and uh, Enrico Morricone. I thought, I didn't notice the music. Yeah. And I watched it again. I realised that it was, it was really good. The music's fantastic, but you don't notice it because it works so well. You know, it just you just take everything in, and you don't kind of separate it from the film. There
2: was, I mean, yeah, no, and I think um, you know, Elan did a fantastic job in terms of some of the things you were talking about conveying emotion and also which is very useful for us we had no dialogue sort of giving the audience sort of musical clues about a character coming back or you know or an idea coming back but actually something that was important to us as well was Mm -hmm. silence Mm -hmm. and um we didn't want wall-to-wall music and we actually there's a few uh particularly comedy sequences where we just said let's not have any music and there was something i think we were quite influenced by this uh belgian director jacques tatty you know, who made films in the 50s, and he used uh, sound effects as kind of um, a comic device, really. And, um, and uh, so sometimes it was really nice just to let it sit there without any music. And then when the music came back in, it kind of it almost brought m- more power with it when it did come back in. So that was quite a nice thing as well. We've got time for some more questions. So, um, anyone at
0: all, there's two people down the front. If you bring both mics down, gentlemen there, and then man with the glasses here in the front. Um,
5: My question is for Pete. I just was looking at the concept art for Disgust and realised how many uh, iterations that you went through to kind of arrive at that. Um, I think my question is, are there any other characters, any of the other films that any of you have worked on that have been notoriously difficult to get right, or on the other hand, that you've got instantly? And when you're working at a character that's difficult to kind of visualise or picture... um, what what is the process is it a slow kind of growth where you're kind of taking composite bits from various story artists or is it you know arriving at a character um suddenly after months um
3: yeah, it's a good question. Uh, disgust, if you haven't seen the book, we have, I don't know, a couple hundred drawings, and that's only a small subset of all the stuff that we did. Mainly, and I think this happened for Sullivan on, on uh, Monsters, Inc., too, we were so unclear as to who that character was as a character, as a personality, that we were designing blindly. In other words, we weren't sure if disgust should be disgusting or disgusted. You know, is she herself gross to look at with goo or whatever? Or is she. Above all that, and looks or n- down or knows at things, of course we went with the latter, but once you have that kind of zone, then you you limit things, and you can start to even with that, of course, we have hundreds of drawings uh, there too, but um, in the end, I think a lot of it is just kind of a gut intuition for what that character how it speaks to you and and uh, sometimes you know like a, on on inside out, we had a particularly difficult job because we weren't even sure should these kind of look bipedal are they humans are they I mean they're emotions I've never seen an emotion what does that look like um, so that took extra extra pencil mileage um, but a lot of times just in drawing even in drawing the boards you'll test certain things out and it'll mutate just kind of evolve subtly to fit the part better you know anger kind of got shorter and shorter as the film went on because he it just seemed funnier that he's this little pent up ball of energy if he's too big already he seems threatening so uh just naturally without being too intellectual about it the the storyboard artist just started drawing him smaller a lot of stuff like that that just kind of happens over time
1: Uh, sorry that was that was aimed at you so um uh uh, character design yeah i think I, i don't think it's actually a very difficult process for me personally because um the two things that happen simultaneously, if you're talking about a character, you're already thinking visually about it. So um, I think the basis of it there is, is, is arrives at the same time as the idea for the character, almost. So um, I, I don't think I've ever had the problem where I think, I don't know what this character looks like. Because if, if that was the case, then I probably don't believe that character. Um, but, um, uh, and like and like Peter said, the they evolve in the boards as well. But, um, I, yeah, uh, I might it might
2: be worth just mentioning one. Sorry, just to jump in, but, um, I can't draw by the way, so I'm a complete fraud. Um, <laughs> but I should just, I should just go now. But, um, but I will say one thing, which is, uh, which is that the, um, uh, the, the, the mouth shapes on Sean, the sheep, uh, coming outside was something that came from a board artist. I think, wasn't it? That was,
1: yeah, I was, I was very keen to keep Sean quite Buster Keaton like and quite very deadpan. Um, just use the eyes, you know. And not not even the ears, because he's not a dog. His ears don't prick up when he hears things. He's, he's a sheep, and uh, but we kind of needed we needed him to smile and, and things. And uh, but at first, we had a particular board artist who actually now works with Peter. I think JP JP Vine. He um, when he was drawing the the, the original boards, he'd, he'd just put a, stick a little mouth on to say that that is is he's happy or he's smiling at that point. Didn't intend to have it there, uh, and then the model makers started to add them. I thought actually that looks quite funny. So some people kind of buy into it. And some people go, "Why have they got these weird mouths stuck on the side of their heads?" And um, but uh, yeah, that came from a board artist. Yep. Thank you. Um, yeah, as a former
4: armed security guard, I would just like to say. No, uh, no, no I thought not really. it was you. <laughs> no, it's a question for all of you, really. Oh. <clears throat> I think what makes your film so brilliant is the, the discussion you were having earlier. It's not just the comedy uh, and the emotion; it's that you've got some, you deal with some really powerful themes that you share with the audience. You know, you talked about the, the family dynamics in Shaun the Sheep, um, and you know the theme about sadness being an important component of someone's quality of life. You know, and a lot of the Pixar films really that resonate for me because of the themes, Wally, about obesity and capitalism and up about death and what really matters in life is not necessarily, you know, going to some fancy place in South America. Um, when you've got so many collaborators and so many people working on a film, how do you manage to keep that spine running all the way through so that it, 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 it stays there throughout the whole film with so many people working on it?
1: Oh, go ahead. Well, I, I, I just think that's... that that's actually our job that you know so um we're kind of can be kind of like traffic cops as well we kind of direct people to the right places and and tell them what to do as as well as um trying to visualize our story uh, get our story over but um yeah that's a job really i mean that that's that's the and it's it is difficult it can be difficult you know when people kind of um uh, you know occasionally an animator won 't quite understand why you don 't like that particular smile, and it should be this kind of smile or this I one eyebrow should be higher than the other. they they don 't sometimes they don 't quite get it and both me and mark mark especially being a more experienced writer can kind of contain the story in his huge brain walks around waddling with his huge weight of story on his head, and uh you know we kind of that story. <laughs> <laughs> that's a, but that that 's that's the job really i mean to to keep to keep that story online really
3: and it's the job of the people that you're working with to understand mm. that hey it's not they they might have some great ideas but it's not that story we're telling right now so they you know and if you're working as a story artist on someone else's film you have to kind of get on board with what it is mm. we're we're talking about i think it's also fun well fun is the wrong word but i i i enjoy bringing questions up that are not clear cut in terms of what the answer is. I think the danger in having themes and morals and things is that you can get uh, heavy and pompous and uh, we try not to do that. I mean, you think about even something like growing up or whatever, uh, sadness, you know, there's no real clear cut answer. I guess the closest we get to that is it's it's important to allow sadness into your life, but you don't want to moralize, I guess.
2: No, but I think the filmmaker, um, you, you have to take an angle, don't you? Yeah. I think that's anything you do. You're not saying this is the only answer, but this is what we think. Yeah, for this And I think character. that is the director's job, is to say this is our philosophy. I mean, I think what is true is sometimes those um, ideas, those emotional ideas, like the DNA of the film, come up against the story development process. And it's okay, as long as you're aware of it. And I think you have to ask yourself, okay, well, maybe you know, it does happen sometimes. But, you know, we're, we're telling this wonderful theme, but, you know, the story sucks. So is it worth it? Let's, maybe, maybe it's the wrong theme, you know. Um, in the end, as you say, we're not, we're not here to moralize. So sometimes uh, there, there is, you know, it is important to, to keep articulating what you think you're doing. Uh, but, to, but it's the director's job at the end of the day to make that decision. Okay, we've got one question there, and then we'll pass it to you.
1: What advice would you give to young animators?
3: Good question. Well, I see you have a sketchbook there, right? That's one thing I would do is keep drawing because that, I, I know a lot of people in computer graphics don't draw, but I've never seen anyone who said, boy, you know, I can draw really well. well that was a complete waste of time. It always ends up helping. Even if you're not drawing what you're doing, you're using a computer or, or puppets, you can use it to help communicate to other people because we're so, we're so visual. So uh, that's it's very useful. It's like being able to write well or something. Um, and the other thing it does is it helps you notice things. So if you're at the, the shopping mall or at a restaurant or whatever, if I start sketching, I'm suddenly aware of all sorts of details that I wasn't, even thinking of a minute ago, oh, that guy's got a cool scarf I that maybe I can use that in a character, or the way that guy just did this thing with his fork, uh, my wife hates it because it means I usually stop engaging in conversation, but it it is a way of really uh starting to notice the world and keep it in your head. so that'd be one thing anything else you'd recommend
1: uh yeah, well, I have to say it's um it's for a young animator you can you can it's so easy to, well, relatively easy to to start now. I mean, when I, I was young, uh, you'd need a film camera, you need film, you need to process the film, you need to physically edit and have editing equipment. Now it's all built into an iPhone or a you know mob, mobile phone, so you can get you can get apps for for animating, uh, or you can animate with Vine as well. The, the app Vine, we we that uh, takes a few frames, if the amount of time you keep on the screen, I've seen some great vine animations, so it's, it's relatively easy to start. So, are you animated? Have you an- made any move? Oh, good, right, you haven't got them with you. <laughs> All right, great, good, <laughs> love to see them. Oh, yeah. really? Looking for a job, but I wonder who's, <laughs> I wonder who. Nick, Nick, the software, anyway, so <laughs>
0: The other thing is, in the way that people say to directors um, or people who want to be directors, watch lots and lots of films and screenwriters should read lots and lots of scripts, see how other people draw. And, and you begin to see individual styles and it tends to be someone's personality coming through that. And if you keep at that, sooner or later, your own personality will, be, will come through. And that's what people really see. They see your personality shining through on that.
3: Yeah. I remember stepping through animation one frame at a time in the same way going, like, how did they get this snap the way that Bugs Bunny goes, boing? You know, how did they do that? And you step through one frame at a time and you see all this stuff It starts to filter into your head. And, and those kind of things uh, are, are a great help too. I just do.
0: imagine all your friends going around going, can we
1: just watch the cartoon, Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a bit older than you, so I was trying to freeze frame the video. And every time i just just miss it and curse. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs>
3: yep. Yeah.
1: Got someone behind here, yes.
4: Hello. Um, quick question, uh, really... Well, firstly, congratulations to both parties because both films were completely enjoyable and I'll watch them over and over again. I love them. Um, really, it was firstly a question for Pete. I know you were the first person at Pixar to direct after John Lasseter. And I just wondered what was the hardest thing about being a team member, working there sort of so early on, then sort of becoming in charge of a project and whether those challenges were the same challenges for your subsequent films or whether they were new challenges that came up once you were already used to that kind of role. And sort of the same as well to Mark and Richard working as a team. How how does that work for you guys as well?
3: I think probably the toughest thing was that Uh, over the John Lasseter had done three films up to that point and so people were kind of used to his way of working his persona and unconsciously they were sort of measuring me against him which is totally unfair (laughs) in a lot of ways Um, but in the end, I think what I realized or I was able to do is kind of find my own way so and i 'm not going to enter the room in the same way John is i 'm not going to you know be as uh, a, a big a personality i 'm kind of quieter and and find my own way of articulating things or asking for things and focus on different things so a lot of it 's just getting your feet wet and getting uh, enough traction and experience um, to know and feel confident in yourself. I know uh, a lot of times I remember growing up thinking some people are just born with the magic touch that they're gifted and talented and it's just not fair. And that's sort of true, but mostly uh, what it takes is just a lot of experience. It's not like you could ever give a three-year-old a guitar and expect that they'll be performing that night. It takes years and years of practice and filmmaking is the same way. The first film you make is not going to be brilliant chances are uh, it may be almost intelligible you know F- from then you gain more and more experience and you go and, and so that was the main thing I think for me getting my feet wet
1: so it's just reminded me of something Mark said that made me laugh when, when we overheard somebody saying we want some young fresh writers and uh, you know, we're talking about experience and it's like yeah it's like saying I want some young fresh brain surgeons that haven't actually <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to, to do the operations you know it's it's a kind of a nonsense, really. What was the question? <laughs> <laughs> well, how do, how do we work as a team? All right, how do uh, we work as a team? How do we um... work as
2: a team? Uh, pretty badly. Next question. <laughs> no, I, I think the um, – I think it's always, you know, it's – well, I suppose uh, um, our experience, yeah, we, we I, similar backgrounds, similar tastes, I think, in comedy and so on. Some of that helps. Um, I think uh, you try and find a space in the relationship. I mean, uh, you know, Richard's obviously a brilliant character designer. He was very strong on all the visual side. I'm not an animator, so I came more from the story side and the script side. Um, But, you know, we sort of... uh, And and you have your ups and downs. It's like any other kind of marriage. You just kind of get on with it. Um, And uh, I think at some point, um, you have to... There's a kind of division of labor. uh, And you kind of oversee each other's work a little bit um but you have to kind of break up really and you know we 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 physically split the there were 20 units so we split them into 10 each and we and we each had our own sequences and i think the the challenge with that was that we made we made sure we were engaged in each other's work throughout the process
3: I grew up in Minnesota where the idea was you don't want to argue with people. You're always nice and uh, and polite. And I, it's taken me a while to shake that off because uh, I think if there's more than one person in the room, there better be a reason, right? You're not supposed to agree with the, uh, each other all the time. This guy might have some really great points that I disagree with and so on. So there's healthy argument that happens, I think, in, in any good relationship.
1: Yeah, and it's, it's kind of a safe space, you know. Um uh, the, I think probably similar to Pixar is when we uh, give, like uh, we've been given notes to Nick Nick Parks making his film, and we kind of we're quite critical, give him quite critical notes, but he's never going to be offended by that because he knows that the thing is it's the story in the film that's important. Yeah, and and um, you're just trying to make it better. Yeah, just trying to make it better. So um, you you have to you can. You can be brutally honest and not offend people. Is is, is, a, is quite nice. Well, you still offend them, but oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they just have to pay. They have to take it. Go, yeah, that's, yeah, that's a it. really great idea. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yep.
4: So I wanted to ask: um, How do you go about selecting what colours you use for your characters and also the backgrounds to um, like create the world that the characters live in? Um, and also in terms of lighting, because I know like lighting is such a subtle but powerful thing so how do you go about you know like imagining what lighting to use in what scene
3: well for us at pixar it, it all comes back to the art department and on this film you know some characters were fairly obvious we, we wanted uh, the, the emotions to be very broad and cartoony and and strong and so anger being red that was pretty obvious and the fire and everything joy we always had sort of a golden yellow other ones were kind of like fear. Well, I we don't really have a strong associative color with fear. So purple's left over. Yeah, that's what he's going to be. Uh, he rounds out the set. Um, um, and in a lot of cases, you know, characters like Carl Fredrickson or, or Kevin, the bird or some of these other characters, it's really just playing around and trying a ton of different things until you find what feels correct. Um, sometimes it's, just shadings. You know, Mike Wazowski on Monsters was always sort of a green, but he was initially a little more blue-green, and because of his sort of peppy attitude, the yellow brought him more vibrancy uh, into the character. You hope that all the characters are a reflection of what's going on inside, because everything, everything that you have at your disposal, sound, color, light, all of this says something to the audience. So you can either waste that or you can use it in some way to further an agenda, something you're trying to communicate. So we try to be as conscious of all that as we can. Sometimes it's only through trial and error that we find what actually works best. Do
2: you, uh, are you kind of conscious of a color palette for each movie?
3: Yeah, for sure. And we have, uh, if you've seen any of the making of books, we have these things we call color scripts, which uh, I think Ralph Eggleston, who was the art director on, Toy Story it kind of invented these so you know if you really want someone to feel a punchy color of red let's say what you want to do is surround that with blue because contrast is what ultimately gives you the biggest pow so um, even through time you can subtly make everything's very uh, muted or blue and cool and then on a cut pow you bring all this warmth in that doesn't happen by accident that has uh, only happens by very careful planning and and uh uh, you know, plotting it out like that.
2: I guess I mean, I, I mean on um, on the sheep. I think one thing we did say uh, from the outset was that there's a lot of stop frames that, for some reason, become quite dark. I mean, not only dark in terms of um, subject matter, but sort of um, uh, physically dark. I mean, like the Leica movies. You know, they're great, but they they, they have a sort of darkness to them. And I think we sort of say, well, stop frame can still be up and and kind of quite vivid and fun. Um, and I think. Uh, that aside, from you often use um, in terms of lighting. Obviously, our lighting is real. You know, we actually have, you know, a real, a real lighting man on a set, and he's actually putting up a light. And um, I mean, that is a narrative issue. So you say, well, which part of the story are we in? What kind? What are we trying to convey with with the light? And that's a, a really a, as much a story conversation as it is a an art director conversation.
1: Yeah, and in terms of palette, we're um, it's probably more akin to live action. So. We want the audience to, to buy into it and feel this is a real place. So we didn't stray too far in terms of palette. It, it's things of the color that they are because they are in real life. Um, I mean, we kind of used um, – we used a bit of red around Trumper to, to, as an element of danger. I'm I, I, just curious to see if that would work because I, I read it in a theory book once. And <laughs> so, uh, you know um, – Trump, whenever he's around, there's either a red light in the, in the background or there's, there's a pool of red light near his feet, or, um, or he's looking through red goggles towards the end of the film. I'm not sure whether it worked or not, but it was. <laughs> I, I read it, so I thought I'd better do it. Uh, somebody far more intelligent than me, you know.
3: <laughs> we use color uh, through the film and, and inside out. At the beginning, it's very saturated, you know, especially in headquarters. As Riley becomes more and more kind of I do not say depressed but you know uh, we, we muted the colours so if you pick a frame from somewhere in the middle or late act two it's going to be way subdued and less saturated than it would be at the beginning or, or the, the, the end again trying to reflect the emotional state of the character
0: got time for one more question oh, well, okay a couple there's someone right at the very back
4: hello um, going to post-production I just wondered how big were your editing teams and uh were you working with one kind of senior editor quite closely, or were you working with a number of them? And uh, how do you do? You get to personally choose them, or uh, yeah? And how much creative input did they have?
2: Uh, well, we, we we ended up with one um, uh, main editor. Uh, 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 we, although we went, we t- took us a bit of time to find that guy, just in terms of availability and things. Uh, it's a really key role, the editor. I mean, they—they they are, you know, it's—it's. It's, I mean, everyone's important in the production, but they are a key worker in terms of, the that the, they're also involved in developing the story with you, and. Um, they are, you're in the room with them, in the edit with them for many hours, and you're trying to make things actually work. So it's the point at which, you know, it's the cold face of the film. It's like, you know, that's where I used to love to be. It's right at the cold face of the film, is this is where, this is what actually the film is. Everything else has just been chatting about things and looking at pictures and design. This is what actually the film is, and you're, you're trying to actually direct the story. And so the person you have with you has got to be, it's a really difficult job, I think, because they've got to be sort of respectful that you're in, you're in charge, but they've also got to challenge you as well and say, I'm not sure that's right. Um, it, it was hard. And uh, we end up with uh, Sim, Sim Evan Jones was uh, the editor on it. He did a, did a great job yeah. on it. He had a lot of experience as well.
1: It worked on Shrek Shrek before, and he had, he had a great sense of timing. He really under, understood story, all these things, really important. Of course, there's a, there's a whole other team of editors. There's like three or four other editors that are... The working on sequences uh, under his direction, or you know, or, or kind of trying to, they going to try and present them and, and suggest stuff to him. And um, uh, yeah, it, it was. It was. I'm so pleased we worked with him because he. We had a problem at the start of the film, which we kind of seemed to have two two beginnings. He he he, he went a great way into to solving that problem and and, and change, turning things things around and making it a better film than it would have been if if we'd have cut it.
3: very similar with with us Uh, I got to work with Kevin Nolting who I worked with on Up and very key in terms of pacing and timing and and subject matter same thing where some stuff we would board up and Kevin would uh, cut it dutifully but say to me I don't think this works and so we would adjust I think we had about 9 or 10 people on the editorial team so there's a number of second assistants and support and things like this um, but yeah, they're the first guys. Well, not quite the first guys on, but they're on in story reels. Uh, the, every time it goes in animation and CG, every time it goes through a different department, it comes back to editorial, potentially changing some things. You know, animation might grow. It goes back to editorial. They'll cut some stuff, make it work again. Uh, it goes to lighting. Well, now it's way too dark. We need to add a little more time here so we can really see this. So they're just involved at every single stage, all the way to the very
1: bitter end <laughs> yeah i think uh actually those that work in animation have uh much more highly highly honed skills because they've got less to work with they've got they've got less footage to work with you know in uh, live action you might might have several takes or several scenes you don't even know if you're going to make the film we can't afford to do that um so they're the way they can uh, help improve the story is is actually by changing things around. Let's try this here. Let's move that over there. Really big decisions that actually um, – that, that we're kind of, kind of often surprised by because we hadn't thought of it like that. So th- they can make um, a yeah, huge difference.
3: I've read that some actors in live action say, oh, it's the – a- the actors really dictate a lot of the pacing. So they'll c- cut and mm-hmm. cue off of the actors' yeah. uh, pacing. And for us – it's the editors that are creating that pacing and, and and the timing. You know, they they create the performance along with everybody else, the animation and
5: whatnot. Yep. Um, a question for Pete on story. Um, I think having emotions as characters is obviously a really simple idea, but how did you get to the fact that you wanted to choose um, the snippet of Riley's, you know, moving uh, moving houses as the premise of the film
3: what well, we changed uh, we were from the beginning looking for something to represent growing up um and it, we had a, du- a number of different ideas there was, there was one plot that we actually storyboarded that revolved entirely around uh riley going to a party and which flavor of crisps should she bring to the party that was the whole plot. And we found early on that the more was – the the contrast uh, really helped us. So if inside it was all heck and loose, we wanted something fairly small outside. We also needed something uh, that would be affected – sorry, that the, the, the emotions could have an effect over. In other words, if Riley was lost, uh, they couldn't help her, right? They wouldn't – they could make her panic more or less, but that doesn't really solve anything. So it couldn't be physical stakes, which is usually – uh, especially in in animation, that's usually where you go. Is some sort of physical stakes for the main character. We needed to f- rig some situation where it was more an emotional thing, um, and this is where we eventually came around to is the sort of running away um, uh, and and f- refusing to allow sadness to express herself. And and so um, it seemed. I, I when I was in fifth grade, my folks moved us to Denmark. So uh, I had a very similar experience where I didn't know anyone. I couldn't speak the language and it was very uh, – uh, you felt completely alien and foreign um, and that right at an age when you're trying to form your tribe and figure out who your your friends are. Uh, so that felt tr- uh, right for, for me and it seemed to reflect uh, a lot of other people's experiences. Whether they literally moved or not, you kind of feel, have that feeling that, whoa, everything is different now. The rules have changed suddenly and I, nobody told me. <laughs>
2: Can I ask you a question: Do you think Riley is the main character? No,
3: no. In, in our film, the main character is Joy. At least that's the way we looked at it as writers, because she is the one that has to to change, to understand. And and uh, it got complicated because, of course, she is kind of part of Riley. So what she does affects Riley, uh, and that led to a bunch of different things, even internal structure of the of the mind world. You know, the whether it. We had one version where it was like a spiral going down, down to the subconscious, which felt really nice but had, didn't work for our storytelling. So things like the islands of personality grew out of a desire to physicalize the stakes. You know, What's at stake for, for Joy is Riley's personality. So like any parent, what she wants is to make sure that Riley stays who she is. And the physical way to show that that we eventually discovered was these, these sort of islands which could crumble away and so on. Inside Out
0: and Shaun the Sheep movie are available now to watch on DVD and Blu-ray. However, um, with all the nominations, uh, both BAFTA and the Oscars coming out um, and the awards coming up, uh, the BFI Southbank is actually showing all the nominees' films. So if you really want to see these two films as they should be seen, I would suggest you go down to BFI Southbank and watch them. Um, Thank you to Disney, Studio Canal and Pixar for helping to organise this event as well as BAFTA and Picturehouse. But most of all, can you please join me in thanking our guests today?